Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Angela C. Sutton. She is an assistant research professor at Vanderbilt University, where she has taught sea power in history, the golden age of piracy, and comparative slavery. Her new book is Pirates of the Slave Trade, The Battle of Cape Lopez and the Birth of an American Institution, which is published by our friends at Prometheus Books. Angela, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here. I hope all is well in uh, Nashville, if that's where you are. Vanderbilt is a beautiful campus. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, um, first related to your book, but before we dive into the book properly, I want to ask you, how did you manage to make a career out of studying and writing about pirates? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, to be honest, when I was little, you know, I would watch those Errol Flynn films like Captain Blood with my grandma. And I'd be like, oh, grandma, when I grow up, I'm going to be a pirate. And she's like, no, be a dentist. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, but I, I came I, I came to Vanderbilt um, to do my Ph.D. when I was 23 and I wanted to study piracy. Uh, and when I when I got there, I realized that so much of what I thought I wanted to do had already been done um, because, of course, everyone loves pirates. It's not just me. It's it's, you know, um, and and, and and so like when I was there, though, I sort of realized that something that hadn't been looked at is piracy in the slave trade. Like what do pirates do when they attack a slave ship? How do pirates interact with enslaved people or formerly enslaved people um, where they're black pirates? Like all, all of these questions sort of become a little bit more complicated and they don't necessarily put our pirates into the best light, which makes it really difficult for people who love pirates to work mm -hmm. on because you know, if you have heroes, you have to kill them. That's sort of the rule of, of life, right? Yeah. Um, and I think in, in doing that, it what it really did was like help propel me into this world of um, this world of understanding just how everything in our country is based off of race, which came from the slave trade, mm -hmm. um, and how the culture of slavery is really like infected absolutely every part of our society, from religion to economy to culture to language, um, everything, politics, of course. Um, and so it really has helped me to um, be a person who moves through the world in a more conscious way um, mm -hmm. and who looks at the South especially, but the whole country um, as part of this like global system of anti-Blackness and how we can, and that sort of allowed me to kind of think through ways that we can extricate ourselves from it so that we can create a more equitable society. So really, like I started with pirates, but my career is more um, thinking through how um, those lessons that I learned with the pirates can really apply to so many of the problems that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll touch on a lot of things uh, that you just brought up throughout the course of this interview. Uh, but one more question before we jump into the book. Uh, what does a course in comparative slavery entail? Yeah. Um, so I, I think something that a lot of Americans don't think about, because we're just not taught that at, at most school levels, um, is that Slavery was really a problem that infected the entire world. Enslaved Africans were enslaved everywhere in the world, um, especially everywhere in the Americas, but also it happened in Europe too, which a lot of people don't know it happened in Asia, right? So like everywhere in the world had this African slave trade um, and the, the results of this trade. Um, and what happened was that every nation sort of had a different system or a different way of approaching enslavement and what that means. And as a result, 
each nation sort of built its own system of race and of inequality and of um, racialized capitalism, um, all of these things. And if you only know about American slavery, like if the cotton fields are your only frame of reference for that, then you really miss out on the fact that so much, um, so many of the problems that we have are not unique to us, right? Like America is not the only country dealing with us. This is a global problem um, and it requires a global solution. It requires us all to look at our country within a comparative scope. And so when we look at anti-Blackness in other places, we look at the different slave laws in other places, we look at how other places um, have grown up around the slave trade and have refused to reckon with it. It really allows us to understand ourselves a lot better um, and it allows us to not take it so personally. And I think that's the most important thing, right? Because I think a lot of um, elements to the right would argue that studying slavery um, is shameful or harmful to white people because it makes us feel guilty about who we are as people. Um, and it's just not true because I, I've never enslaved anyone. <laughs> I don't know about you, but like no one alive, um, except for all the people involved, of course, in modern slavery, but no one alive here has enslaved anybody in the Atlantic slave trade. We're all past that, right? So it's not our fault. It's just our responsibility to fix the after effects of that. And so there's no reason to feel shame for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, now let's dive into this illuminating book, Pirates of the Slave Trade. First, Angela, can you take a moment to set this book up for our listeners? Yeah. Um, so Pirates of the Slave Trade uh, uses the Battle of Cape Lopez as, um, I want to say like a heuristic device, it's just a way to get at a bigger truth, um, which is the truth of the slave trade and of slavery and the ways in which the slave trade picked up after the battle that affected how American slavery was created. So essentially before the battle, there were many different forms of enslavement that were circling and they all kind of derived from the Roman model because that was the context that Europeans understood because that was their history, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this Roman model of slavery was the one that was being applied in most of the Americas. After the Battle of Cape Lopez, the British achieved supremacy in the slave trade, so they were able to push their model. Now, mm. their model was the much more economically efficient model of chattel slavery. Mm. And chattel slavery is like this all-encompassing system that um, is very different from Roman, because under the Roman models, people who are enslaved are still people. They're still considered human beings. They still have human rights. But uh, under the chattel model, they are no longer considered people. They're considered objects in the eyes of the law. And when you objectify people legally, and not just people, but a peoples and their descendants in perpetuity, um, that drastically changes your culture. It's not just Black culture that was transformed. It was all of us that were transformed when we made that pact to dehumanize an entire group of people based on their skin color. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Angela. Excuse me. Thank you so much for that answer, Angela. Um, your book starts in 1722. Can you tell us a bit about the research you did uh, for this book and what sources you used to flesh out this story that took place just a hair over 300 years ago? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you can imagine, um, the ways that documents were generated, preserved, and stored um, means that so much of what was created is no longer with us. Yeah. And the things that are with us are the things that were deemed important by the societies that paid to have them preserved. Mm -hmm. And so um, the documents that I used were almost solely, almost exclusively, the written words of slave traders from Europe. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so I looked at the different European slave trading companies and all of the documents they generated. They're mostly economic documents. Mm -hmm. So you have the West India Company from the Netherlands. You have the Royal Africa Company from Great Britain. Um, you have the Swedish Africa Company from Sweden. And you have the Prussian Brandenburg Company from what is now Germany. Um, and these companies, they all did their business in this small part of West Africa called the Gold Coast, which is now modern day Ghana, and then also a little bit further along that stretch of coastline. And um, they they competed with one another, so they generated a lot of documents about one another. So it's a way that you can like triangulate different sources and kind of look at how they speak about one another, but not only that, but how they speak about the people they enslaved and how they spoke about the Africans who they traded with or relied on to survive on the coast of Africa. And so um, there's a lot of that, but because I don't have anything written by Africans or enslaved people, right? Like. I have to also use lots of geography, lots of archaeology, um, lots of uh, oral histories, because those are ways that you can get at cultural truths um, and other and other things that slave traders just wouldn't have thought to consider writing about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, now on to pirates, specifically Black Bart. Uh, why do you think pirates? You alluded to this a little bit at the beginning of the interview here. Why do you think pirates, Black Bart especially, still capture the imagination of so many people uh, so many years after uh, he, Black Bart, specifically lived? You know, um, I think so many reasons, um, but the one that maybe doesn't get talked about a lot is that pirates were ordinary people just like you and me. Mm -hmm. um, and they often found themselves in these extraordinary circumstances um, and they were pushed to these circumstances like coerced by the systems that created life at the time so capitalism the pro the proto formations of capitalism black bart was just some guy who knew how to sail a ship that's it he was a welsh fisherman and he thought he was going to die a welsh fisherman mm -hmm. um, and then because of the the way the economy shook out when the slave trade started ramping up he found himself working on a slave ship because it was the only job he could find mm -hmm. um so he was sort of like coerced by circumstance into a really unsavory and really unethical job and i think that all that rings true with so many of us today i think mm -hmm. um and so then he ends up his ship ends up getting pirated because at this time one out of three sh slave ships are being pirated it's that it's that pervasive and when he gets pirated, he's the first to jump off that slave ship onto a pirate ship. He's like, I'm ready. I, I was born to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born ready. Um, and I think that like that, um, that idea that we have any control over our circumstances, that we can create a different type of world where we have self-determination over ourselves is incredibly alluring in a world where our choice, the choices that we have available to us are shrinking on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Angela. Listeners, we're going to pause here for a word from Libro FM audiobooks, and then I will be right back with Angela C. Sutton. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro FM has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. 
I'm back with Angela C. Sutton, author of Pirates of the Slave Trade, which is published by our friends at Prometheus Books. Angela, before the break, we were talking about Black Bart. Um, is there an equivalent of Black Bart today in 2023? Um, a pirate or maybe someone in another walk of life that is accomplishing similar things when it comes to uh, debauchery and disruption? <laughs> Um, I don't know about debauchery, uh -huh. um, but uh, someone that I think about a lot because of where I live mm -hmm. uh, is Justin Jones. Um, you may have heard of the Tennessee Three, um, and uh, Justin Jones is our representative here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that he has infiltrated, <laughs> the way that he has managed to grip the hearts of a bunch of young people who suddenly see that there could be hope, that there might be some possibility to fight for our lives, for gun control, for the ability to um, live freely in a state that is consistently smashing human rights mm -hmm. um, is incredibly alluring. And Justin is um, disruptive in all the best ways. It's been really wonderful to watch him go through life. Um, of course, he's much more principled and interesting than Black Bart, though. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, <clears throat> back to your book. Uh, one of the most interesting facts to me was that when uh, these pirates who you're writing about captured slave ships and held them ransom for eight pounds of gold or what have you, uh, they sometimes gave the captured slaves the option to join the pirate crews. Uh, can you tell us more about this? How often did this happen? Yeah, it's hard to say because, you know, mm -hmm. pirates didn't leave behind a lot of written documents. So all we have is what people wrote about them. And uh, in the book, I sort of show that a lot of what was written about them was written by people who weren't there and who didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we sort of do know some things, uh, for example, with Blackbeard, um, who was someone who was uh, executed three years prior to the Battle of Cape Lopez. Mm -hmm. um, Blackbeard's crew was heavily Black. And in fact, his first mate, Black Caesar, was a West African. Mm -hmm. um, and we think he might have been formerly enslaved. We're not sure mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and we know that there were um, a lot of Black pirates who were captured when pirate ships were captured by navies. Um, but we don't have a lot of their words either, because just like with Black Bart, what happened with Black Bart's ships when they were captured by the Navy, mm -hmm. uh, the Black pirates often end up not being asked to give testimony. And instead of being executed, they're often sold into slavery and the pocket, the profit goes into the pocket of whichever naval officer captured them. Mm -hmm. um, so we just don't have those voices, but we know that every ship had Black pirates on board. Um, but we also know at the same time, while those ships had black pirates on board, a lot of those ships also had enslaved people on board that they used as enslaved people whose labor they stole. So like there's this like um, sort of like just like a, a wide variety of beliefs that are occurring at this time. Um, everyone kind of thinks differently about what constitutes humanity and who is a human being and who isn't. Um, and sometimes a lot of that decision is based on um, economic circumstances or political circumstances at the time, and that can change. There's no, you know, it's it's very changeable. There's no, like, pardon the pun, there's no black and white. People have this, like, ability to widely vacillate between how they feel about race and slavery and ownership, um, and it's largely colored by what their needs are at the time, which is what happens when you have a system that is so exploitative, right, that people's needs end up dictating what they do, and that is when we accept dehumanization of others. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. I'm um, a quick follow up. Uh, did the captured slaves, uh, the slaves on these ships that were captured by pirates, did they know they were slaves? In other words, did they have any idea of the life they were heading towards? Oh, yeah, everyone knew. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, it was definitely not a secret. I think um, when you think about the structures of the slave trade and how it worked, um, basically, if, if you were an African living on the coast, your options were to either participate in the trade or become at risk of being enslaved and sent across the Atlantic yourself. Mm. And so if you participated in the trade, then your job was to deal with middlemen whose job it was to go into the interior and raid villages mm -hmm. uh, and bring back people. And during that long march, there would be a lot of conversations and people would share a lot of information about the others who had been raided in, in nearby villages. Mm -hmm. And then once they got to the coast, there usually weren't ships waiting for them. So people had to be kept in a slave dungeon. So, or like a slave castle, they call them. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these are still on the coast. You can still go and visit them now. And so they would be like held in these dungeons or holding pens, uh, sometimes for months until a ship would come and take them. And the way that ships, slave ships worked is that they were very keenly aware that if you um, take a large amount of people from the same village, that there's a higher chance of them being able to communicate with one another and revolt. Mm -hmm. And so instead of going to one slave castle and taking all of the captives who are there, you just take a handful and then you keep going down the coast, visiting every castle and just taking a handful of people so that the people that you're taking are from all different places, speaking all different languages, and they have a more difficult time arranging and organizing an insurrection on board. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, a new topic. Who was the African king who drank out of a chalice made from Dutchman's skulls? <laughs> I love the way you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> that was... Um... A man of infinite names, but I call him John Connie in the book, uh, just to keep things simple. Um, he was called many things. And the reason why is because he grew up at this like really crucial point in time where he saw his people, the Ahanta, they essentially had dealt with already Swedish people, and they got they got really kind of treated unfairly through that exchange. Then the Dutch came and tried to make a treaty with them, and they signed the treaty. They were ready to begin working with the Dutch when the Dutch laid waste to their village, and John Connie was able to flee. Um, he was just a teenager when that happened, and he went up to Fantiland, and he trained, um, he trained in all the martial drills. He learned all the tactics, and he met with older people who had been involved in the slave trade before and knew what was knew the deal. Um, by the time he accepted chieftaincy, he ended up, he was like in his 50s. Um, and so he had a big vendetta against the Dutch and he was he was ready. At that point, the Prussians came into his life and the Prussians were desperate to establish a slave trade. They came really late to the trade. And so most of the places along the coast already had castles from other Europeans and the Africans who lived there already had contracts to work with other European groups. And so the Ahanta were the only people who hadn't had contracts because they got burned by the Dutch and didn't want to work with the Dutch. So they worked with the Prussians. Um, John Connie, though, was much older than the people who the Prussians had sent because just like working on a slave ship, working in a slave castle is not a job anyone wanted. Mm -hmm. So it was it was largely young people, uneducated people, um, people who sort of um, were forced or coerced into the job in some way who ended up there. And John Connie was twice their age with twice their experience and he could speak like four or five languages. And so he would run circles around them. He controlled the Prussian fort there. Um, and it's really it's really fun reading those letters um, that the Prussian slave traders sent back back home to the elector because they would try to convince the elector that John Connie is right and that they need to do everything John Connie said. And it's not because John Connie was making the best decisions for Prussia uh, at all. It's because they were terrified of him and because he had a standing army that he could use to wipe them out at any time. And he chose not to because he liked being in that castle that they built. Um, anyway, so when they leave, 
they sell the castle to the Dutch without telling John. Um, and John decides, no, we're not doing that. And the Dutch come to take it forcefully. And he's like, no, this is my castle. It's on my land and my people live in it. It's my castle. I'm the king. Mm -hmm. um, and they come to try to blow him out of it. And so he has them all killed. And then he boils their heads and takes their skulls and um, tips them in gold so that they're very beautiful and ornate. And then he only brings them out when he has European visitors because he wants to send a message. And at this time, Europeans already have this idea of like African wildness and savagery. There's all these like rumors going around of cannibals. And of course, there, no one was eating anybody in Africa. Um, but the, these rumors were so persistent that um, a lot of Europeans were already really scared to deal with powerful Africans. And so John Connie would like leverage these fears in order to intimidate and try to, um, you know, he would use them to his advantage politically. Uh, and he was really the guy that his, his fort was positioned in such a place that everyone coming into the slave trade had to stop there to refresh their water supplies mm. and so he charged them a really small tax just so he could meet with them because he was really after information and gossip like he he was he was a trader of information and gossip and he knew everybody he knew black bart and he also knew the naval officer who was hunting down black bart mm -hmm. yeah fascinating thank you i don't know why but he uh he reminded me of kurtz from heart of darkness uh yeah. by joseph yeah, yeah. um yeah you you touched on this a little bit, but I'll ask you to elaborate a little further. How did uh, he, King Connie, how did he play the differing European powers against one another? Well, the thing is that Connie, um, because he had spent all this time up north in Fantyland, he had these wonderful contacts with the Ashanti Empire that was emerging at the time. Mm -hmm. And this Ashanti Empire had access to absolutely everything and everyone in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And so if you were a European, if you could make an allyship with John Connie, you too had access to everything and everyone in Africa, mm -hmm. um, in West Africa. And so um, he was someone that people really wanted to get on the good side of, um, and he knew that. And so he he played everybody. Um, and, and and so when Europeans had conflicts with one another, um, Connie would always sort of like stir up the conflict and make it a lot worse because he loved watching them fight one another. Because when they fought one another, they weren't coming to him and forcing him into anything he didn't want to do. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, finally, Angela, and we have barely grazed the surface of this book, which should be a staple in every collection of historical mm -hmm. texts. But finally, uh, this is a big question, but I suspect it's something that you've spent at least a portion of your academic career thinking and writing about. Uh, I want to talk about muskets, uh, the invention invention of and the production and consequences of. Um, what happened after the invention of guns, muskets specifically, that inspired the people that had made them towards committing genocide and enslaving people towards their own ends. It seems like there are so many different ways that history could have gone. Why, in your opinion, is this the route that was chosen as opposed to, say, peace, love, and understanding? Um, I mean, I guess the simple answer is just like human greed, right? like human greed and formation of capital. But mm -hmm. the complicated answer here, let me let me think it out because I don't think for I've sure. ever articulated Absolutely. it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when you think about guns and the slave trade, there there's a historian, Walter Rodney, who wrote about the slave gun cycle. And um, the way he wrote about it, there, there are a couple of things that maybe need to be tweaked, but the idea is very sound. And the idea is essentially that um, 
Europeans brought guns into the trade because the Africans who were scared of becoming enslaved themselves wanted to have a big supply of guns so that they could uh, prevent that. And they used those guns then to enslave others in order to save themselves. Um, and so this like demand for guns created a surplus in the slave trade, which in turn created a higher demand for guns because it became a increasingly less safe place to be because of the raids of the slave trade, like essentially warfare sustained the slave trade. And so it was necessary to sow these divisions, necessary to exploit divisions and necessary to um, keep raids going if you were a slave trader and wanted to make sure you're getting maximum profit by extracting enslaved Africans from their continent and bringing them into the Americas. Um, and so at this time you have munitions factories that are operating in Belgium and in the Netherlands that are creating most of the arms of the slave trade. And um, so far, I haven't yet seen a book on this, but I'm, I'm desperate to know exactly how that worked because we know where the guns are coming from. We know how many are being shipped um, and we know how valuable they were. In fact, the naval officer who hunts down Black Bart, after he deals with Black Bart, the pirate menace, he realizes John Connie is going to be the next problem to the slave trade. Mm. And so he conveniently goes out of his way to deal with people, another African group that had a problem with John Connie, and he supplies them with an entire chest of flints, which are um, a stone that just doesn't, it doesn't occur naturally in Africa, and you need them in order to make your musket work. Mm. And so with a flint, you can essentially make any old musket work again. Um, and so it was incredibly important for these, um, out, these foes of John Connie to have the arms necessary to possibly oust him if the Dutch were going to come for him again, which they did. Um, so when you kind of like think about like how uh, just like how all encompassing and all important guns were to the slave trade, um, it, it is absolutely no wonder that we're still today dealing with guns and that there's such a racial dimension to the gun violence problem and the way that we talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I look forward to seeing a book pop up on that topic, too. Thank you so much, Angela. And thank you for writing this fantastically informative book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Angela C. Sutton, author of Pirates of the Slave Trade, which is published by our friends at Prometheus Books. Angela, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, always. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Angela C. Sutton for joining me. Copies of Pirates of the Slave Trade can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Bookin'.